Turn your Bibles, Second Chronicles chapter number 33 this morning. You know, all of Bible Christianity fundamentally breaks down to that reality. I owed a debt I could not pay, and he paid a debt uh, for me. Amen. And uh, you say, preacher, isn't there more? Well, yeah, there's more to it, but it all leads back to that. Amen. That's the central reality of Bible Christianity. And uh, that's the condition the world's in. They don't know it. Amen. Uh, one of the one of the tragic things <laughs> is how comfortable everybody's gotten with debt. Amen. Amen. Well, if Dave Ramsey was here, he'd say amen. But uh, I think we've conditioned ourselves in society to just get used to owing a debt. And don't you wonder sometimes if there is not a spiritual application to that reality. Now, I ain't fussing at you for having a car payment. If you think that, you've missed what I'm saying. What I'm saying is society's gotten used to just saying, well, I owe a debt and it's more than I can pay and that's okay, it'll be all right. And could it be that that is in some ways a mirror reflection of the soul of lost man in saying, hey, I owe a debt and I can't pay it, but it'll be all right, it'll just work out. It ain't just going to work out. Somebody's going to have to pay that debt for you. But I got good news for you. Somebody already paid the debt for you. All you have to do is receive the payment that He has made. All you have to do is say, yeah, Jesus, where my name is, just sign your name. Amen. And I'll put my faith in you. I'll let you stand for me. And I'll let your death stand for my death. And I'll let your righteousness stand for my righteousness. And I'll let you be for me what I cannot be for myself. And do for me what I cannot do for myself. Man, I'm thankful He paid that debt this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 33, and let's begin reading at verse number 1. I do want to say thank you to our visitors for being here. Uh, it's a blessing to have you here today. You've blessed us already with your presence. Second Chronicles chapter number 33, verse number 1 says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. But did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah's father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He brought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, In the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen, whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, 
and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. When he was in great affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate and compassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people did sacrifice still in the high places, yet unto the Lord their God only. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. His prayer also and how God was entreated of him and all his sin and his trespass and all the places wherein he built high places and set up groves and graven images before he was humbled. Behold, they are written among the sayings of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his own house and Amon his son reigned in his stead. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Lord, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. Now I pray that you'd bless your word and I pray that Christ would be magnified in everything that is said and is done today. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to have our hearts open. I know that you brought us here for this hour, for this moment, and you have a providential divine purpose in that. So I pray that you'd help us to not just move past this moment, let it not sweep past us, But let us seize this moment right now to arrest our focus and attention upon you. And may our hearts be set upon you. And may we be obedient as the divine, eternal truth of God is preached to us today. Lord, we love you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You know, this chapter of the Word of God begins with a word. It is a name. And if you are a student of the Bible, or really if you just paid attention in the last five minutes, it is a name that in many ways ought to make the uh, child of God and the uh, worshiper of the Word shudder when they hear it. It is the name Manasseh. When you study through the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, which I love to do, I've been preaching a lot out of it lately, and I don't know why I love that portion of the Word of God so much. It's it's a bit of a rogues gallery, if we're to be honest. When you study through there, you find that God takes a man's life and distills it down often to a single truth to communicate to us. You know, I wonder sometimes if God did that to my life, what the truth would be. If there was one truth that was communicated from my life, and God over and over and over again, in chronicling their history, takes a man's life and distills it down to one simple singular truth. If I'm to be frank with you, when I read through the history of the children of Israel, and I read about this man by the name of Manasseh, if I'm to be honest, I got I mean, confession's good for the soul. I think maybe I've missed it in times past when I've read about this fella. When you read about his life, he is, I think probably without much argument, one of the most wicked kings in the history of the two kingdoms. And undoubtedly, he is the most wicked king that ever reigned and sat upon the throne of Judah. All throughout his history, we are told about the wretched and awful things 
that he did. But as I was reading through the Word of God, and maybe it's because I tend to favor the books of First and Second Kings above First and Second Chronicles. Somebody as ill-educated as me has trouble with those big names sometimes. Somebody say amen to that. But as I read through the Chronicler's account of his reign, I found something that I don't know if I just missed it. I don't know if I'm just blind or ignorant. Probably all those things. But when you read about Manasseh's life, you find that it's true that the early days of his life were filled with great darkness. But you know, funny thing about it, and I don't know that I would have answered this right if you quizzed me, but you know, Manasseh gets right with God before his life is over. I don't know. Somehow I just missed that in the reading of God's Word. And the other day I was sitting and I was reading it carefully once again and I came to that passage and God smote my heart and reminded me that what we were is not what gets to define us, but rather what we are in Christ Jesus. If you had said, Preacher, what's Manasseh's life about? I would have said, Well, it is a cautionary tale of the darkness of the human condition. But I'm probably going to have to revise that a little bit and say this, that rather than being commentary on the darkness of the human condition, I think it must be a commentary on the grace and mercy of God. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning, the way back. Let me just say this morning, man, thank God there's a way back. (laughs) I don't know about you, man. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you ain't done some of the things I've done. But I just thank God that there's a way back when we've messed up, when we, when we're broken, when we've torn up our life all to pieces. Man, I'm glad there's a way back. And when I look at Manasseh's life, I'm struck. It would be like defining the prodigal by his journey into the far country rather than his welcome back into the father's arms. If you read the story about the prodigal son and all you take away from it is you ought to stay at home, then you've missed the greater truth but rather that there's a God that will receive you back when you've messed up. I want you to notice three simple thoughts with me this morning. And I might preach short. I find this when I don't have much message, I preach long. When I have a lot of message, I preach short. But then sometimes when I have a lot of message, I preach long. So I don't know how this is going to go. But by the Lord's grace and help, I want to share with you just a few simple thoughts. Think with me, number one, this morning about Manasseh's iniquity. One of the things I love about the Word of God is it doesn't paper over a man's past. I Listen, I'm glad. God's not scared of your past because He can forgive it. Pharisees are scared of your past because they can't do nothing about it. But God's not scared of your past because He can forgive you of it. He can cleanse you of it. And so the Word of God, it, it never misses, it never skips, it never whitewashes the darkness of a man's past. And I'm sure thankful because there's been times, man, I've woke up feeling super Christian, and I just needed to be told how great I was. Amen? That's why you came today, wasn't it? But then there's plenty of times I've woke up in the darkness of my own guilt and shame and mistakes. And I need to be reminded that, man, I'm not the only one that's ever been there. Notice with me his iniquity, and this is a a painful history that's recounted. But I think if we're going to do justice to the Word of God, we must notice it. What could we say about the wickedness that Manasseh had been involved with? And what does it reflect in our lives? Well, notice verse number 3 with me. The Bible says this, He built again the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. And he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. Also he built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be 
forever. And He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Let me say number one this morning. When we look at Manasseh's life, what we find is he devoted his soul to the foe. Say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean this, Manasseh, he didn't just get messed up a little. He didn't just get backslid. He went full-blown serving the powers and agents of darkness. I'll tell you an uncomfortable truth about your sin that you do not want to hear, but this is true for saved and unsaved alike. Whenever we get involved in sin, we yield our members to unrighteousness as instruments of unrighteousness. We have a way of trying to whitewash our sin, trying to paint it up, put lipstick on it, and pretend like it's not as ugly as it is. But the truth of the matter is, whenever you engage in sin in your life, you're helping the devil do his job. You're allowing the flesh to gain mastery. You're allowing the world to get victory. And just like Manasseh, I mean, he didn't just stray a little bit, but he devoted himself full to the pagan darkness of the world that was around him. Can I tell you this? Hey, listen, even if you've been out serving Satan, God will still forgive you. I see that he devoted his soul to the foe. Verse number 6 says this, He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, before you gasp, let me say America's going to have a lot to answer for. There's never been a country so drunk on the bloodlust of the murder of unborn children. I'm talking about enough to make Herod and Pharaoh both blush, as our country has been over the past 40 years. He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And also he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft and dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. And he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Let me say, not only did he devote his soul to the foe, but number two, he delivered his children to the fire. Can I tell you one of the most tragic realities of you as a parent getting out of the will of God is you're going to drag your kids out of the will of God too. Oh, preacher, I'm praying, I'm trusting them to the Lord. That don't mean a thing if you ain't going to live for God. I could tell you story after story after story of parent uh, who uh, for some reason got mad at God, got upset, got church hurt, got out of church, wound up out in the world living like some kind of foolish, dumb teenager, uh, dressing like the world, acting like the world, talking like the world, running with the world, and dragged their kids out with them, and then later on found forgiveness and mercy and the grace of God, but their kids are still out there. One of the most embarrassing things as a parent we could ever do is lead our children in iniquity. And Manasseh did it. He delivered his children up to the fires of pagan worship. And let me say, one of the great failures in Christianity today is the absolute AWOL absence of parents in leading children in knowing and worshiping God. I see he devoted his soul to the foe. He delivered his children to the fire. But look at verse 7. The Bible says this. He set a carved image, the idol which he made in the house of God. It's interesting language that's used here when it says a carved image. It actually is uh, implying a specific god of Babylon. And this god of Babylon uh, was the goddess of fertility. They would worship her with lewd, illicit sexual activity. And he literally, oh, hey, listen, here's what he did. He turned the church house into a brothel house. He set this God up in the temple and they engaged in all of their wicked activity. And you say, preacher, how rotten that is, how wicked that is. I can't believe he'd do such a thing. How vile that that is. But can I remind you in the New Testament that we are told that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. 
Let me say it this way. He defiled the temple with fornication. He took that which God dwelled in. He took that which God dwelled in and made it a den of iniquity. Engaged in lewd, wicked, vile, shameful sin. And let me say this, man. I mean, there's been a lot of Christians even. A lot of Christians even. Because we live in a hyper-sexualized world. We live in a world that is obsessed with lewdness. We live in a world uh, with a dirty mind. And there are a great many Christians that have acclimated themselves to the filth of the world. There's things, man. I mean, there's times. I middle of summer, I don't even want to leave the house. I I wonder sometimes if these people at Walmart realize that Walmart sells clothes. I mean, as I the, I I don't know. Maybe I'm just ignorant. I'm a hillbilly. It's like starving in the McDonald's parking lot. Uh, here they are walking around, barely wearing anything at all. You know, a lot of them have church memberships places. A lot of them teach Sunday school classes. I've been listening to a preacher preach these past few days. I'm starting to get the idea that you might like preaching a little bit. You liked it when he's preaching. And they just dress in ways and behave in ways and live in ways and partake in things that no born-again believer has any business to Say, preacher, I'm ashamed of my soul to admit it, but I've done it. Well, hang on a little bit, because even a man that's done that can find grace in the Lord. He defiled the temple with fornication. Not only that, verse number 9 says this, So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Notice he derailed the people to failure. He didn't just go bad. He led other people to go bad. He didn't just live wickedly. He led other people to live wickedly. And can I remind you, child of God, no man's an island unto himself. People are watching your life. There's people that you're the standard of Christianity to. I'm going to say that again. There's people that you're the standard of Christianity to. When they think to themselves, how would a Christian act? They look at you or they look at me. You say, preach, I didn't ask for that. Don't matter. It's the truth. You say, who would those kind of people be? Well, younger siblings, children, your children, other younger Christians that might be around you, your friends, your associates, your co-workers. When they think what's a Christian, they see you. Now, does your Christianity look much like Jesus Christ? If it doesn't, here's what's happening. You're leading them astray. I see he just... Man, he derailed the people to failure. But then verse 10 is the worst of it. The Bible says this, And the Lord spake to Manasseh. What a precious phrase that is. I don't know about you, man. Somebody treat me like Manasseh treated God, I wouldn't talk to him. I'm just being honest with you. There are some people, it's good to me, I still don't talk to. Amen? Especially after a hard football game. Amen? I mean, we beat Missouri. I ain't talking about me. <laughs> I mean, if somebody treated me like he treated God, I wouldn't want to have nothing to do with him. But the Lord spake to Manasseh. Aren't you thankful for the sweet voice of the Holy Ghost in our lives? Aren't you thankful that God doesn't stub up and stove up and salt and say, I refuse to deal with them. But even a man as wicked as Manasseh, even a man as vile as Manasseh, even a man as wayward as Manasseh, that the Lord spake to Manasseh. Not just that, he spake to his people. How'd they respond? Well, they rejoiced and repented and had revival. No. Verse 10 says, but they would not hearken. 
So let's stop and just take a little inventory here. We look at this man's life. He devoted his soul to the foe. He delivered his children to the fire. He defiled the temple with fornication. He derailed the people to failure. And finally, I mean, to stack sin upon sin, iniquity upon iniquity, he defied the Lord to his face. God said, Manasseh, if you don't turn. And Manasseh said, I don't care. God sent prophet after prophet and preacher after preacher to warn him to turn from his wickedness. And he said, I don't care. I'll do what I want. I'll live how I want. I'll go where I want. I'll watch what I want. I'll do what I want to do. Me and Brother Fred were talking about this the other day. Idolatry still exists today. It's just been stripped of all of its supernatural veneer. Men are still idolaters today. But they don't worship little carven figures upon their mantle, except the Catholics. Mostly they just worship self. They just worship self. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because they say, well, it's my life. Uh Uh-uh. Who told you that? Who told you that? I I, I don't know. You must learn that down to to the state institution. Because that ain't the truth. It's my life. I'll live it how I want. That's how they'll say it. I'll do what I want. Sounds like you believe God is you. And that's the reality of it. It's self. It's the worship of self, it is no wonder that the Antichrist empire is going to be the deification of a human being. He will serve as the perfect avatar for the spirit of the age. Simply the worship of self. And Manasseh, in many ways, he reminds us of that same truth. He defied the Lord to his face. But I'm glad it does not end there. We see Manasseh's iniquity. But I'm glad that the Holy Ghost, he didn't stop there in the writing. And he didn't stop there in Manasseh's life. God kept dealing with them because verse 11 says this, Wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. One of the things I love about God's people getting together is them sharing testimonies. We're getting ready to do this praise, prayer, and pie. And uh, you might say, preacher, that's weird. Why do you have pie um, at the... and, And there's... Number one, if you are wondering that, we don't, you don't, you don't need to go to church here. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't care if you're visiting today or if you've been here 40 years. If you don't understand the need for pie, we are too far apart. But, uh, but part of the reason that we, that we have that praise, prayer, and pie is so that the vast majority of people will be quiet long enough to let those that want to share their testimonies. And I love testimonies, man. I mean, I could tell you my testimony. If you've been around here, you've heard it a million times, how that God saved me when I was a 10-year-old boy alone in my bedroom December 1st, 1997, about 7.30 in the evening. The Holy Ghost of God fell on my heart and showed me that I was a lost sinner on my way to hell. I was raised in a Bible-believing home. I was raised under the sound of the gospel. I mean, I was raised in a, in a church that believed the Word of God and taught me the truth. And I had sat in children's ministries and, and, and youth activities all of my life. I knew the gospel. 
gospel. Nobody had to lead me in how to be saved because I knew I could have probably led someone else how to be saved though I was lost. And uh, the only problem was, though I knew academically that I was lost, I didn't understand it in reality. And so God showed me I was a lost sinner and uh, that I need to be saved. And I asked God then and there to forgive me and save me. You know what He did? He did. Because He keeps His promises. He did. He saved me. I love testimonies. And usually what we're telling in our testimony is here's where I was, and here's where He found me, and here's what He did for me, and here's where He brought me. And you know, when we read these verses, we see Manasseh's testimony. This is the story. If he stood up at praise, prayer, and pie, he'd say, let me tell you about how God saved my soul. And what would it involve? Well, notice, number one, it would involve his reckoning. Verse 11, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns, and bound him with fetters, and carried him to Babylon. You know, every man has to have a reckoning. A point in which you have a head-on collision with the cross of Calvary, where you are confronted with the reality of your lost condition. No man ever got saved without first understanding they were a sinner. And Manasseh, God, had to get his attention. It's interesting the way he does it. Notice that he uses uh, affliction brought on by external pressures. He brings the king of Assyria. He didn't have to do it that way. He could have afflicted him with a sickness. Uh, He could have brought upon him some great plague. But instead, he brings something else into his life. Can I say something to you today? Saved and unsaved alike, can I say something to you? Why don't you listen for the voice of God in the problems that you lament and complain about? I'm not mad at you for complaining. I've done my share of it time and time again. But I'm just saying, you claim to be a Christian. Something shows up in your life, uh, kicks the air out of your lungs. Why don't you stop and say, God, what are you trying to say to me in this? Because this didn't happen by accident. God sent these. And then the Bible says this. They caught him among the thorns. Commentators have tried to do everything they can to punch a hole in the King James Bible when they look at the meaning of that word. They've tried to suggest that it, it is really reflective of hooks that would have been put in his nose and all kinds of things. I just, I don't know, man. I just believe the Bible I can read. I just believe the Bible I can read. I just believe the Bible that I can hold in my hands. I just believe the Bible. I mean, they talk about these originals. I ain't never met anybody with any of them. And they, they talk about the... It's funny, you know, they'll, they'll say, because we're King James only, we are King James only. We are King James only. We are King James only. We're not King James ugly, but we are King James only. And we're not ashamed. We're not embarrassed at that. But they'll say, why y'all worship leather and paper? And uh, it's a very simple answer to that. You worship animal skins and vellum. What's your animal skin's doing for you? I can hold my King James Bible in my hand and read the Word of God. And so I'll just go with the uh, 52 brilliant men that translated the King James Bible and just agree that it means thorns. That's what it means. It means thorns. And you say, well, preacher, what happened? Well, he did uh, what any scared rabbit would do whenever the wolf comes stalking. He went and hid among thorns. By the way, there's a precedent for this in the history of the children of Israel and their culture. There were other times they did this. They would hide from their enemies in the thorns and in the thickets. You know, it's a reminder of sometimes when God's getting our attention, He'll put us in prickly places. You know, you know, I, I, I hate thorns. I mean, I just, I, I hate them. I hate blackberry bushes. I hate thorns. I hate thistles. I don't understand. One of these days, God's going to banish all of them. I don't think they're pretty. I think they're awful. And you ladies would think that too if you had to mow around them. I'm just telling you the truth. 
And uh, I, I hate them because you get tangled up in them. And then you know what happens? Everywhere you turn, it hurts. Everywhere you turn, it hurts. There ain't no getting out of them. You just have to be plucked out of them. Because everywhere you turn, it hurts. You say, I'll get away, and it hurts worse. Say, I'll turn this way, and it hurts worse. I'll turn that way, and it hurts worse. And it reminds me of what it feels like when the Holy Ghost of God is dealing with a man's heart. It doesn't matter where he turns. He can try to turn this way, and it still hurts. He can try to turn that way, and it still hurts. He can try to wrestle himself out of that circumstance without breaking his heart before God, and it still hurts. And we're left saying, like God asked uh, Paul on the road to Damascus, Why kickest thou against the pricks, Saul? Hey, listen, he caught him among the thorns. Then what did he do? He bound him with fetters, put chains on him. Wouldn't let him go where he wanted to go. Uh, here's, uh, here is the number one lie the devil tells people. If you go with me, you'll get to run your life. If you go with me, you'll get to run your life. And that's a good idea, just like that reverse mortgage, right? <laughs> no no downsides to it. You'll, you'll get to do whatever you want. The Bible says no man can serve two masters. Can I say what's implied in that is no man can serve no masters. You're going to serve somebody. Do you want the good master? Or do you want the grievous master? Hey, hey, listen, do you want the one that will drive you with whip and, uh, and bridle? Or do you want the one that climbed up Calvary's hill for you? Which master do you want? And so here's what happens. He says, Manasseh, you won't let me guide you. I'm going to have to put fetters on you. And he learns that that lie he had believed that he could go where he wanted if he just went the devil's way, it's proved to be false. And then the Bible says he carried him to Babylon, took him to a strange place, place where he didn't know nobody, place where he had no friends, place where he had no family. He was isolated away from every support system he could find because often God can't deal with a man till he gets him alone. I'm not talking about running out on your family. I'm not talking about shutting out your wife. But I'm saying God's got to get you to a place in your life where you quit, cease depending upon other people around you and you realize it's God with whom we have to do. I see his reckoning. Number two, I see his repentance. Verse number 12, when he was in great affliction, because, I mean, we're hard-headed. Most of the time that is when it happens. When he was in great affliction, he besought, I love this phrase, the Lord his God. Now, you take that however you want to take it. You can believe that Manasseh didn't know the Lord, but now in this moment he knows the Lord. I'm of the belief that the way that men in the Old Testament knew God, I don't know whether righteousness had been imputed unto Manasseh or not, but I know that as a Jew, Jehovah was his God, whether he liked it or not. And so he cries out unto his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And prayed unto him. In other words, he had to be broken. He had to be broken. Wise man once said, we'll never be broken from our sin till we're broken over our sin. And and really, our chief problem, most of us, is we're not nearly bothered enough by our sin. Say, preacher, why can't we get victory from it? Because we ain't sick of it yet. We don't even view it as bad yet. We view it as a moral flaw, not defiance against God. And as long as we view it that way, we're probably not going to get over it. We're probably not going to get help from it. We're probably not going to repent of it. I see his reckoning, his repentance. But then I like what the Bible says, verse 13. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. I see not only his reckoning and his repentance, I see his restoration. God didn't leave him there 
God brought him out. You know, a lot of the reason we don't want to come to God when we've messed up is because we think there ain't no, there ain't no going back. We think it ain't never going to be the same. And it might not be the same as it was before. But like the preacher said this past week, it might not be the same, but it can be better. It can be better. The devil would love for you to believe that you've messed up and God's done with you. He would love that. He would delight in that. You ought to read his playbook. That's the number one play that he's going to run on you. It's to get you to believe that you're done. You're over because you've messed up and because you've let sin in your life. I read Manasseh. I see a restoration here. He says, Manasseh, if you'll turn to me. By the way, this was in response to the promise of God. God had already said when the temple was built that if His people, because of their sin and iniquity, uh, had to be scattered. I mean, in many ways, He is a small representation of the nation at large that would be carried away into Babylon uh, because of their iniquity and their sin. And God had already said when Solomon consecrated the temple that if His people uh, would cry unto Him and would humble themselves and would repent of their sin and would pray towards that holy city, towards Jerusalem, that He would hear from heaven, He would heal the land, He would restore them back. And God's doing for Manasseh that which he had already said that he would do. I don't know who this God is that culture has created for you. But the God of Bible Christianity is a God filled with grace whose loving kindness reaches no limit, whose mercies are new every morning. And I'm not saying he's soft towards sin and I'm not saying he takes lightly our rebellion. But I'm saying if we'll repent and turn to him, he'll restore us back. The psalmist said of all the many things he said of his precious shepherd, he said, he restoreth my soul. I see his restoration. I like the end of verse 13. I see his realization. Then Manasseh knew. Then he knew that the Lord, Jehovah, the Lord, he was God. You know what happened? It settled some things in his soul. It settled some things. And you know what you'll find? You're afraid that if you come back to God and ask forgiveness that you're just going to in about 20 minutes mess up and be all messed up again. But you know what you'll find? That supernatural work of grace that God does in your life has a way of settling some things in your soul. And it did for Manasseh. You know, he came back and he said, you know, God really is real. All those other false gods that I prayed to all the way on that wagon ride down to Babylon, none of them, not one, a single one helped me. But when I prayed to the God of Israel, he heard an answer. And he brought me back into this place. I see Manasseh's testimony. But then notice verse 14. We see Manasseh's responsibility. So now here he is. He's come back a different man than he was when he left. He is a humbled king. He is a holier king. And he comes back into the city of Jerusalem. And now what's he going to do with his life? Say, preacher, I've messed up before, but by God's grace, he forgave me. But I just don't know how God can use me. I don't know what God wants of me. I don't know how God could use my life. Well, how did he use Manasseh's life? Notice we see him doing three things. Notice, number one, we see his construction. Verse 14. After this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering in at the fish gate, and compassed about Ophel, and raised it up a very great height, and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. The preacher, what does that tell me? Well, think about it in relation to the earlier passages. For instance, verse 3, he built again the high places. He reared up the altars for Balaam. He made groves. Verse 4, he built altars in the house of the Lord. Verse 5, he built altars for all the host of heaven. 
in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Here's what I sort of think Manasseh was probably saying to himself. He's probably saying, I spent enough years building the devil's monuments. And I may not be able to build what I could have built had I started way back then. But I can sure enough spend the rest of my days building that which glorifies God. Say, preacher, what do I do, man? I've messed up. I've got mistakes. I've got baggage. I've got scars. What can I do for God? You can serve Him. Funny idea. People's funny, man. Sometimes I get put out with that. I mean, people's funny. People walk around acting like if you if you come into the house of God and you've got a rough past, like, oh, well, they're really going to look down on you. I have never in my life, never in my life, I've never been in a good church that did that. I've never even been in a bad church that did that. I, I, I don't know if you realize this, right? But like good churches are filled with grace and bad churches are filled with gross. Like, I don't know where you think people are going to be so scandalized by the mistakes you've made in your past. Uh, that's an entire figment of your imagination. And you say, preacher, I made mistakes. I couldn't serve the Lord. Sure you could. Sure you could. Sure you could. Uh, I see his construction. He said, I- I'm done building the devil's monuments. I'm going to start building the Lord's works. And then I see, verse 15, I see his cleansing. It says, he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem and cast them out of the city. It's interesting, that casting out of the city, has, it, 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 it's, there's a lot of imagery with that. We're told in the New Testament that Christ being crucified not within Jerusalem but outside of Jerusalem was highly significant, that that was viewed as him being ceremonially unclean before God. And by the way, it's a reminder that uh, for the Jew, if they want to get born again, and God will save a Jew. Uh, listen, uh, don't think this wild olive branch is going to boast against that natural olive branch. God can save a Jew. God can save a Jew. And you, but if he's going to save them, they've got to go without the camp. They can't keep one foot in Judaism and one foot at the cross. They, they've got to cease depending on that and start depending upon him. He'll save them. He'll save them. And so being outside of the camp, it denotes uncleanness. Here's what Manasseh did. He said, I'm going to take all that mess and I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to throw it out as unclean and unfit before God. I see his construction, but I see his cleansing. What did he do? He cleaned the things out of his life that were filthy in the eyes of God. Ah, we're a funny people, man. We'll we'll come to God and weep and boo-hoo and blubber and ask forgiveness, then get up and go and settle right back into the sins that we were involved in. Don't you know that has to be an offense to God? It'd be an offense to you. If you had somebody doing you wrong and they came and wept before you and, oh, I'm so sorry, and asked your forgiveness and then turned right around and smacked you across the jaw, you wouldn't take that so well, would you? But we do God that way. How do you know it was real in Manasseh's life? Because he cleansed the things out that offended God. There are things very likely in your life that offend God. We like to say, well, God's not upset. God's not. I I don't know when it's going to happen. I preach a lot, so I guess I'll preach at some point. But three times in Revelation chapter number two, God says, I've got somewhat against thee. There are some things God's got. And people say, well, sometimes I just feel like God has a problem with me. He might. He might. He might have somewhat against thee. And by the way, those people he's writing to in Revelation chapter number 2, and I understand all the dispensational implication of it, prophetically speaking, but those were also real literal churches he's writing to extant during that day. 
Uh, these are churches. I'm talking about churches like our church. People sitting in pews, eating fried chicken, gossiping. Churches. And he says to these people, I got something against you. He might. He said, preacher, what do I do? Get rid of what he's got something against. I see his cleansing, man, but then I see his correction. Verse 16, he repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed thereon peace offerings and thank offerings and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God Israel. So here's what he did, right? He said, I'm not, I'm not going to keep building the wrong things. I'm going to start building the right things. I'm going to get the wrong things out of my life and I'm going to fix the things that are broken in our worship of God. You ain't serious if you ain't ready to fix what's broken. I'm not trying to be smart. I'm not trying to be snide. I'm just, it's true for me too. If I'm not willing to fix the things that are broken, you know, of all things, the preacher said this last week, one of the things I appreciated most was he said, I ought to never get to the place God can't change me. If you ain't willing to fix what is broken in your life, you are playing games, and that is a dangerous place to be. God don't play games. God doesn't play. You try to play games with Him, it's going to hurt. So instead, get serious. I see his correction. He found the things that were broken and repaired them so that the people could have a right relationship with God. And you need to find the things that are broken in your life. You said, preacher, like what? Your prayer life might be broken. Your, your scripture life might be broken. Your testimony might be broken. Your consecration might be broken. Your faithfulness might be broken. Your relationship to the church might be broken. And you say, preacher, it can't be fixed. God's in the fixing business. It's what He does. He doesn't just fix. He creates anew. He is the only being to ever exist that has creative power. Amen. He makes all things new. The preacher, He couldn't. Yeah, He can. But you've got to be willing to let Him. I see Manasseh's iniquity. I see his testimony. I see his responsibility. But finally, and this I ain't even going to preach this, all right? So don't get nervous. I ain't even going to preach it. We're just going to talk about it. We're all, let's all just settle down. Take a deep breath. We're just going to talk about it. I see Manasseh's legacy. I like the way this chapter ends. Verse 18 says this. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer unto his God and the words of the seers that spake to him in the name of the Lord God of Israel. So that's his life, right? That's his life. That's, that's what he did from that day forward. Here's what it says. Behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel. You know, it's apparent when you study the Bible that there were books that existed that were considered authoritative, though not inspired scripture in the Old Testament. And it's interesting when it talks about uh, later on, you know, things written in the books of the seers and different things. Uh, you know, some of these things God hasn't seen fit to preserve for us. But the Bible says these things are written in the book of the kings of Israel. God goes out of his way to say, turn over a few chapters and you'll find a testimony and a record. You know, this book is eternal. Man, that must upset the devil. It upsets his crowd. It, man, that has to bother the devil to know that he just he can't destroy this book. I mean, he can try to burn it, and he can try to change it, but God's going to protect it. And, you know, I think to myself, I remember hearing a preacher years ago, this anecdote about a preacher would walk around, he had a big old Bible, and everywhere he went, he'd carry that Bible. Everywhere he went, he'd carry that Bible. And somebody asked him one day, he said, you know, why are you carrying that Bible everywhere you go? You ain't going to church. And he said, well, here's why I carry it, because my Bible tells me that heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. He said, if it all starts to shake apart, I'm going to throw it on the ground and jump on top of it so that I know I'm on solid footing. This Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't change. 
doesn't go anywhere. Man may have its counterfeits that it, it changes, but God's going to preserve his word. You know what that tells me? The things that Manasseh did are recorded for all of eternity. Let me say it this way. His legacy was eternal. It was eternal. It didn't go anywhere. God took note of what he did and made record of it. You say, preacher, people will remember me for the bad things. Well, some of them might. But God's going to remember you for your obedience. I see it's eternal. Not only is his legacy eternal, verse 19 says this is prayer also and how God was entreated of him. It's spiritual as well. So preacher, they'll remember the bad. Yeah, but there'll be some that remember what God did as well. Man, I thank God. I thank God. I thank God that it ain't only the bad that is remembered in the human mind. I, you say, preacher, you know, but how will people know? Well, you're going to tell them. That's how they'll know there's been a change in your life. A part of the problem is you lived a lot louder for the devil than you do for the Lord. When you was living for the devil, you was getting drunk and being loud and obnoxious and rowdy and defiant and shaking your fist at God and the preacher and everything. You lived real loud when you was messed up. You say, preacher, how can I fix that? You've got to live real loud now that your life is right. Live real loud now that your life is right. Be bold in your testimony. I, I see it's spiritual, but I like verse 19. It says this, and all is sin... I don't like that. I don't like that in my life. And his trespass, that hurts. And the places wherein he built high places, man, and set up groves and graven images, I don't like that. I, I wish that in my life could not be said. But I am thankful it ends with these four words before he was humbled. I like his legacy because it's eternal, it's spiritual, but it's real. It's real. You say, preacher, I can't undo what I did. No, no. But you can, almost like a precious gem, set it within the setting of God's grace. And say, I'm not proud of how I lived, but I'm proud of His grace. I'm glad He forgave me. I'm glad He's restored me. I'm glad He's took me into His fold and allowed me a place at His table. Now let me say it very, very clearly this morning. If you're saved by the grace of God, you don't need to get re-saved because you can't get unsaved. Because when God does anything, He does it right. That's how you know God created cornbread. Amen? He did it right. Some cornbread. Savory. We're not going to do that. We're not going to get there. I mean, listen, when God does something, He does it right. If you're saved, you don't need to get re-saved. But you might need to get right with God. Ask His forgiveness. Hey, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to cleanse us, uh, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might need to get your life right with Him. And listen, if you're lost, you don't need to get your life right with Him. You need to get born again. You need to be saved by the grace of God. You need to confess yourself a sinner before God and and ask His forgiveness, putting your faith only and solely in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. And He'll save you. But here's what I'm happy to report. You say, preacher, you don't know the things I've done. God does, and He'll still take you. If you'll come to him, let's bow together this morning as musician comes, the altar's open here. Here's what would be a good thing. You might say, preacher, that's not me, but it is someone I know, someone I know. Why don't you come down, pray for him this morning, lift their name up to the Lord, ask God to do as he did for Manasseh and work personally, powerfully in their life. You say, preacher, this must be them kids messed up, raised in drug homes and drunkards homes. Manasseh was raised in a godly home but he still went wayward. I've known some raised in godly homes that went wayward. Why don't you come?
lift their name up to the Lord. Say, God, work in their heart. Convict them. Show them. Break them if need be. And do it in your loving kindness and grace. With your providentially restrained hand, do only that which is necessary and nothing more. But God, work in their life. And there might be somebody here that say, Brother Toby, if I'm be honest with you, I've never been saved. If I died right now, I, I'd die and go to hell. I don't know that I'm a Christian, but I'd like to. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up? I won't embarrass you. won't call your name. won't do anything to, to embarrass you. But I do want to pray for you. Brother Toby, I believe I'm lost, but I don't want to be. How many would say, Brother Toby, uh, I know I'm saved, but there's someone that is on my mind. I could call their name right now. It's not just lost people in general, but there's somebody on my mind right now that I believe is lost. Help me pray for them. Would you slip your hand up? all over the room. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.